Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Amalia Leguizamon, author of Seeds of Power, Environmental Injustice and Genetically Modified Soybeans in Argentina, published this year by Duke University Press. Dr. Leguizamon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Stentor. It's a huge pleasure. Yeah, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Uh, to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? All right. Um, well, I am now an associate professor in sociology and Latin American studies at Tulane University. I was just promoted and tenured thanks to this book, though. It's, uh, even though we are all going through a really difficult time with COVID, 2020 has been quite a blessing for me. So <laughs> it's quite weird. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, so I'm here at Tulane University. Uh, this book is the result of the rewriting of my dissertation. I mean, it is studied in grad school, like many books that I, I, I hear are, are presented here at, at the New Books Network. So I began, I am originally from Argentina, and I did my grad school at um, the CUNY Graduate Center in Sociology. So I had... I arrived into soybeans because I was interested in environmental politics. I had written my master's thesis around uh, an environmentalist movement that had emerged in Argentina around protesting the establishment of a pulp mill in Uruguay, actually. So people were protesting in Entre Rios on the Argentine side against the establishment of this pulp mill that the Uruguayans were supporting because they were going to, there was the promise that they were going to give them jobs, uh, but the Argentines were not getting any of the jobs. They were only getting the pollution. And they were, uh, so therefore they were protesting against the establishment of this factory. So when all this started happening, I had been learning about social movements, but I couldn't wrap around my head that, um, that, an environmentalist movement was re- was demanding for something that wasn't about uh, conservation and the protection of the environment, right? Like typical environmentalist uh, movements here in the United States. So uh, I started delving into that, and I was lucky enough that uh, Ken Gould, who later became my advisor, was just hired by CUNY. So he taught this course in environmental sociology. So in that class with him, I like discover a new framework, theoretical framework to understand how the natural workings of capitalism like create all the social and ecological disorganization. And so I like I became I I got taken by the theory and right at the same time. So I was trying to figure out, okay, I want to use this, but I wasn't sure with what topic. And right at that moment, this massive protest emerged in Argentina, starting in Argentina in 2008, which became known as El Conflicto del Campo, 
the conflict with the countryside. So what was happening was that the government, uh, then uh, the Kirchner's government, decided to lift export taxes to soybeans, right? Um, and in response, the soybean producers, producers staged this protest that lasted for three months. It was massive. It's considered the largest agrarian protest in Argentina, right? So suddenly everyone started talking about soybeans. And so it was a huge awakening for me. I am from Argentina, right? And I'm reading about this and I'm trying to figure out how is it that um, people are protesting around soybeans, that these soybeans are genetically modified, right? I had been reading a lot about um, agrarian social movements. I had been reading a lot about genetically modified crops, right? Like we're reading people like Vandana Shiva. It is uh, the time of Occupy in New York. So people are taking over public spaces to grow food. So being anti-GMO is quite much of the discourse and, and the practice. But then suddenly I learned that in Argentina, there's this massive soybean production that is gen- that is based on uh, genetically modified crops. And people are not protesting against it, but actually are protesting because they want more of it. So uh, it, it became like such a huge puzzle to try to understand that, that, that um, that became the origin of starting this project of why is it that, that Argentines are, um, have embraced soybean production despite, and, and genetically modified crops despite the social and ecological um, impacts, negative impacts that they create. So that was the origin, became the dissertation, then I got this job, which was fabulous, but then I, I turned uh, the dissertation into multiple articles, which helped me understand how to type this better. And now it's the book. <laughs> so yeah, okay. that's that's great. Yeah, and so that actually leads me into uh, my first question about the book, because you know you mentioned there being a lot of disadvantages to uh, GMO production, and kind of your question is why why aren't people against it uh, in Argentina the way they are in many other parts of the world? So. Could you kind of go through what are the both the pros and the cons to GMO soybeans in the Argentine context? And how do you see those kind of adding up, you know, when you weigh up the, the good and the bad uh, of it? Yeah. So thank you for that question, because that that is the the, the key of the book. Right. Um, so definitely the main pro, which is huge and it's very important and it is the classic explanation for any um, study on the political economy of the environment for latin american countries is that um, soybeans give a, bring a lot of money to the country right um, so soybeans now expand over half of all arable land in argentina argentina is historically an agro exporter right an agricultural producer and exporter so uh, now, soybeans expand over half of all the land that is being grown with um, that is being grown with agricultural crops. A third of all exports, a third of all Argentinian exports, are soybeans. Right. So, uh, the most important reason is because it, it brings huge profit for the country of, and for the agribusinesses and for the individual producers. Right. So, we have a classic case that it brings money. Um, Now, but what I do explore in the book are multiple other reasons that explain um, the the benefits, right? And and most significantly, what I touch upon is into the cultural and symbolic discourses around agricultural production in Argentina, and in particular around the adoption of new technologies. So something that I learned throughout my fieldwork is that the Pampas region, which is the central region, the central agro-export region for Argentina has a long tradition of technological innovation, of capitalist production, right? So um, soybean producers now feel very much proud of continuing this tradition of technological innovation, of modernization of the countryside through the adoption of this new technology, this biotechnology of genetically modified crops. So in addition to to, uh, bringing huge profit, what what explains um, support for the technology is that 
is is that um, is that soybean producers and and the media, right, and the experts, etc. We can talk about this later, right? But they they frame they frame soybean production as bringing modernity to the country, right, as bringing progress to the country, and so therefore they tie the the present of uh, soybeans to a long past, and it's a it's a proud past, right? Like it's a past that that ties to an art the memory of an Argentina in the twentieth in the twentieth century when it was the granary of the world, right? Like it's this memory of Argentina when it was great, and um, when when Argentina was on the same path of development than Canada and Australia. Right um, when Argentina was a huge exporter of wheat and caro, and so, um, so in a, so what I say is that in addition to to this um, profit, there there is a cultural dimension that explains the adoption. Um, at the same time, uh, and this is important, is that a lot of this economic profits trickle through from the agribusinesses through the state into the rural communities and also into uh, the urban, particularly the urban poor, through the uh, through the redistribution efforts by the Kirchnerista government. Right. So this taxation, this 30% taxes that were imposed onto soybeans, they were uh, used quite strategically, I say, I argue, to create consent, right? But it, it was important to to bring visibility that that um, that that huge chunk of exports was being reused and reimplemented to help the majority of Argentines. So for building schools, for building hospitals, to, for building infrastructure, uh, there was a massive creation of a solidarity soy fund that paid for this. Uh, soybean money helped and continues to help pay for um, cash transfer programs, right? So those are important benefits. Now, on the other side, what I do talk about in the book, and I'm trying to make this visible because this is the visibility of the negative impact of soybean is growing and has grown in the last in the last few years, right? But it is still not talked much about. So what I'm trying to do with this book is also to, to make visible that there are negative consequences to the expansion of genetically modified soybeans in Argentina. Um, the, the, the most significant, well, I don't know if the most significant, but the ones that I pay more attention to are the health hazards of agrochemical spraying. The key thing about soybeans, of genetically modified soybeans, is that they work, they, are, they have been genetically modified to be resistant to herbicides, right? So they require the spraying with a glyphosate-based herbicide. And with that, even though um, the experts in Argentina and in the United States keep saying that glyphosate, which is branded Roundup, is not toxic, it is. People are are experiencing on their bodies the impact of 20 years of relentless spraying, right? So over time, this builds on bodies and what we're seeing in Argentina is that people are having uh, severe health problems, um, rashes, cancers, leukemias, uh, mothers that are experiencing miscarriages, being, babies being born with malformations, right? So this is quite massive. In addition, uh, there are also negative impacts in terms of the contamination of the soil, the water, the air, um, in addition to... Um, the deforestation that is taking place in the north of the country as the agrarian frontier expands north. Uh, so we're seeing massive deforestation. That that deforestation is also um, uh, uh, displacing uh, peasant and indigenous population in the north. Uh, many times this happens in quite violent ways. So um, many indigenous and peasant leaders have been murdered by um, in these land conflicts. Uh, and we see, in addition to this, other social consequences like um, land concentration, um, increasing inequality, um, um, issues around uh, food security, right, as soybeans replace traditional crops like wheat and cattle, etc. 
Yeah, so I, I like that your book highlights some of those, the broader social consequences, because a, a lot of the discussion about GMOs sometimes focuses really narrowly on the, the genetically modified crop itself and isn't seeing those larger connections that I think you draw uh, really well in this book. So uh, kind of jumping off from that, uh, you use a, an ex- expression in describing uh, what's going on here, the synergies of power, uh, to talk about the systems that create and maintain the injustices that you see happening in uh, soy farming in Argentina. And so I was hoping you could elaborate a bit on that concept of synergies of power and talk a bit about how it helps us to understand uh, the situation in your your case study area and maybe you know beyond that as well. Yeah. So um, what I'm I'm trying to to do with this concept is try to understand the multi-dimensional and relational and synergistic effects on power. Right. I'm speaking mostly in particular to the literature on environmental justice that um, focuses, I argue, and many other people argue too, right, that that it has become quite narrow on their study of class and mostly on race in terms of the distribution of um, environmental injustice, right, particularly around toxicity. Um, so what I was trying, and, and, and this literature also tends to focus on the grassroots movements that organized against this toxicity that they're burdened, right? Um, so what I was trying to understand in in relationship to this theory is to how power operates. And for that, um, of course, many people talking about talk about intersectionality. And, and this is a concept that breeds on that. But what I was trying to do is to is to look not only at how uh, different dimensions of inequality as to pertains into which social groupings we belong to, right? But also trying to understand how how this powerlessness uh, and 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 the power that some actors have actually um, um, synergistically, right, enlarges over time. And and so so what I'm trying to do is that. I am trying to break down each of the dimensions of inequality as I move throughout the book, right? And I'm looking at different aspects of it. I look at, in particular, at gender and how um, gender creates powerlessness. Uh, I look at race, particularly around settler colonialism. Um, I'm, I'm looking at, at class, right? But the point that, uh, that I, I want to make, and I hope it, it came across, is that we can only break down these different aspects or these different dimensions of power and powerlessness only analytically, right? Because it it what what makes injustice so um, stuck, right, and actually invisible at times, right? This is what I I emphasize all around the book is that is how is it that that Consent is created in a way in which we don't even question it anymore, right? In which, in in which that by the time that I meet these people, and I mean in particular here, um, uh, for example, uh, the uh, women who are mothers who are exposed to toxicity, but by this time, like they don't question it or they don't even see that it is possible to do something, right? How is it that we as regular people? Uh, Theories like to call us the subjects of power, right? But like they, like people who are engaged in just everyday life, right? How is it that we become so blind to the grievances that we don't even see that there's something to look into, that there is something that 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 is unequal, that is unfair, that is unjust, and that it is the result of several years. And for Argentina, I'm looking at. But two centuries of a history, right? That 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 compounds this inequality. So, uh, what I try to do with this concept, with this genius of power, is try to to highlight how how again, like how power operates in this way that is relational, that is dynamic, 
and and that it compounds over time. So it, so so that all the multiple dimensions of inequality, as I said, uh, class, gender, race, operate together at the same time, synergistically and throughout time to make things, uh, in a way, I would think even worse. But I I want to think in more in in a way that we take the present, even if it harms us so much for granted, that is no worth. It's it's either not worth doing anything or this is the way things are. So therefore, it's not even a problem. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Makes sense. I think that's a, yeah, <laughs> I think that's a perspective that could be applied to a lot of different kinds of situations where you get that same, same dynamic happening of people not seeing the things that are, are going on. Um, yes, exactly. I mean, th- this is... Um, it was a, a huge challenge for me to come up even with this topic. And for this, I have to, again, thank Ken Gould, who was my advisor at this time, because I was very much stuck in in what we all sociologists and probably all social sciences want to do, right? Like study the movement, study the people that are doing the cool things, study the people that are doing the things that we want to see more in the world. Uh, but suddenly it became quite clear to me that even... Uh, even if I read all these books about the struggles and the movements, the majority of the people are really not doing anything. And for Argentina, it became huge, right? Like we have a country in which, in which, uh, even though it is an agricultural country, even though everyone is proud of what's happening uh, in Argentina as being an agri-exporter, but then no one is doing anything about the negative consequences, right? So the question becomes into, okay, how can we explain not the, the, the odd event, which is the mobilization, really, because that's quite a, statistically, like such a small part of everyday life, right? But how is it that normal people go around living a day, everyday life in a routine way even though they are exposed to such massive toxicity, which for an outsider, it's like, how? How do you do this? And yet, it, it definitely can be applied to multiple, multiple um, other cases because we see this all the time. Like, we are being exposed to uh, centers of toxicity all the time. I've, I just found out, I mean, not just, but only... Um, a few months ago, I found out that um, here, right outside uh, New Orleans, where we are, there's this massive nitrogen plant, right? We are here in New Orleans, right by the cancer belt. And all these plants, these refineries, they are affecting the city too. And definitely there is mobilization and organization around environmental justice here in the, in, in this region. But most of the city, like we just find ways not to think about that. So how does that happen became the key, the, the, the key question, right? How, how is it that we can navigate it? How is it that we can navigate toxicity in a way that we can continue with our own lives? And, and at the same time, and this is important to emphasize for my case, is that this is not just happening, right? These are what I, what I, what I do in the book is I do aim to disentangle the ways in which powerful actors actually create this consent and this acquiescence by promoting these discourses that say everything is all right, right? That bring the the scientific experts and the media and they say uh, glyphosate doesn't hurt you. Uh, this is uh, non-toxic. This is environmentally sustainable. So it's not that people are idiots. The the whole point is about how how these discourses are created that do invisibilize um, the negative consequences that that 
tell people that everything that is happening is fine and they emphasize the benefits. And therefore, when something... Uh, and, and so then people, because they have other things to worry about, they move on, right? Like, um, So yes, definitely this can be applied in multiple other cases and I'm hoping that it catches up, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's an important thing that your your book kind of does is talk about how this this lack of opposition to uh, the problems is a, a product. It's actively created. It's not just that people are just kind of ignoring things passively, but it's, you know, an actual social accomplishment to keep people from uh, objecting and get them to feel like this is something that they should be supporting. So that kind of brings me into the next thing that I wanted to ask about, which is that uh, you kind of make the case that it's important in environmental justice research to look at what you call the in-between people. So not the really powerful people that are in charge of the corporations and the governments and stuff that you know obviously have this vested interest in creating whatever unjust situation we're looking at and not the sort of most marginalized and downtrodden people that are, you know, on the front lines suffering the most, but the people kind of in between there that end up being really critical to maintaining the system and the, the status quo. So I was hoping you could say a little more about this uh, concept and this importance of looking at these in between people. Yes. Thank you for that question. Uh, and it ties up nicely to, uh, what I was saying uh, right before, right? Because um, also, as, as I said, that I was, I'm speaking to the literature on environmental justice. The, the, the main topic that environmental justice theories and methodologies look at is at, at the, mostly at, is at either, of course, documented environmental injustice, which is happening, right? Like finding more, um, sophisticated ways in in showing and mapping in particular how um, communities of uh, poor people and people of color are burdened by toxicity and it's massive and it's very important right it's very important research that that must be done uh, but but the bulk of the work is on on the grassroots movement right of this movement of bot of the bottom, right, of, 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 of the powerless, people who are at the bottom of the social stratification system of how they emerge, organize, and protest against their toxicity, right? There is a, a smaller number, but also very important uh, literature on environmental justice now that focuses on wealth and privilege, right, and how the, the, the people at the top, right, of the the powerful, right? How is it that they not only create the harm, but also how they manage to avoid the like? What are the the privileges, right, that, that come from from having power? Now, what I saw as I was mapping my actors, literally, right, like just trying to make try to understand what were my access to understand what was happening. What I realized is that most of, that, that my question fall into something that to me, uh, I, I think that the in-between, it's, it's, it's to me it's a quite visible and intuitive way of thinking, right? Because these are the regular people. I mean, for Argentina also the majority, I'm talking about um, uh, what uh, people that are of European descent, the middle classes, right? Uh, people that are often, or actually never, like looked at as agents, right? These are people that because they are so quote unquote uninterested, right? They are neither neither promoting harm, neither bearing, bearing harm. They are not mobilizing, right? These are people that are the regular people in everyday life, right? They are there, they they're the majority. Um, so, so looking at them into how they create, how how they are, the actors that receive that that, that are um, that are the target mostly of consent of of creating. As I like how you say it, right? Like 
creating a, a quiescent as a social accomplishment, right? Like this product, but but they also become strategic and instrumental into reproducing these discourses that that um, soybeans are good, right? That soybeans are great for the country, that are environmentally sustainable, right? So they become, if they weren't there, right, this whole thing would not happen. And this is something that um, I think can be applied to to multiple other cases, right? To try to understand the ways in which, as I said earlier, right? Like how is it that regular people in everyday life actually go about reproducing gender injustice, right? Racist injustices, uh, the injustice, uh, environmental injustices in ways that they don't even think about them, but, but they manage by this daily actions to maintain the status quo, right? To to reproduce injustice, and and I argue that they are in between for um, two reasons. One is because they are in between the 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 power spectrum, right? They are neither powerful, right? They don't profit and control agriculture. They are not at bottom, right? In the sense, talking about social stratification system, right? These are people that have there are middle classes that are white. Of European descent in Argentina, right? So they have some power, right? But but at the same time, they are being exposed to uh, to um, agrochemical toxicity, right? So so they are in between in the sense that they they benefit, but they also bear costs. In and then, therefore, they also get caught into this dynamic, right? So they are being—they are in between all, um, like the concept in, of in between. I—I—I I, I wanted to reflect all these multiple aspects in which they are in between or caught or in the spectrum of power. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, a really interesting aspect to the book. So I want to then talk about something else that you've touched on a little bit in some of your other answers uh, I'd like to kind of go a little deeper into is that is a book about GMOs, which are this kind of cutting edge 21st century technology, but you really link it into this much deeper history going all the way back to the country's independence back in the 19th century. And in terms of both the political and economic structures that shape, uh, the country, and then also the discourses about nationhood that are circulating. And so I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about this deep historical uh, dimension to it. Uh, and also, was this something that you were uh, kind of intending to look at when you first started, or is this uh, something you kind of discovered along the way that it has this this deep historical dimension to it? Yeah, so... Um... Yes and no. Um, so I, um, when I started doing field work, I arrived very naively asking about why there are no movements against genetically modified crops. And the producers and the agronomists and the rural folks who were... Um, kinder to me, they were like, what are you talking about? We do the best agriculture in the world, right? Those were the kind ones. The, the left kind were like, we're not talking to you, right? Because they saw me as an activist. But um, as, as I spent more time doing fieldwork, I realized that there was something that I I didn't know. I, I am from Argentina. I am from the Pampas, but I come from the city, the city of Bayolanca. And I really had I don't have family in farming, so I I learned this history of my country as I was learning about this. But what I learned uh, from from my fieldwork is that agronomists, producers, people who live um, um, in and near the farms, they are very, very proud of their past. Right? There's this uh, long history of agrarian production in Argentina that two centuries of agrarian capitalism that, that makes people very proud of the being of always being innovators, right? Of always adopting these new technologies. And, and what people kept 
telling me when they were talking about how proud they are about being innovators and 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 growing more and more crops by using the latest technologies is that they kept telling me about how how this new wave of agricultural innovation tied to GMO biotechnology is making Argentina once again the granary of the world. People kept using this phrase, the granary of the world, the granary of the world. And of course, being an Argentine, I, I know what that meant, that, that means, right? Uh, in Argentina, one of our uh, main myths of national identity, the same, the same way that, Argent, uh, that Americans think of themselves as, um, uh, as um, Americans think of the American dream, right? Like this, this myth that bring people together around one identity, even though they, are, they might or might not be true, right? But they are key for uniting the nation around one identity. And, and here I borrow from Nicolas Shumway, um, who wrote The Invention of Argentina, right? To, to think about how these myths bring people together. Well, in Argentina, the myth of the granary of the world is what makes Argentines Argentines. And it's tied to, to uh, this moment, as I mentioned earlier, this moment in time in the, in the early 20th century when Argentina experienced experience its first agro-export boom in which um, um, in which Argentina was growing at rates equals to other newly independent countries, right? So first of all, uh, that came unintended, learning about this historical dimension. The other thing that, that um, made me think about the connections, particularly in terms of this thinking of nature in relationship to the creation of the country in particular uh, was also in grad school. I was lucky to to take a class on, oh, I, I don't remember this, but I think it was something on comparative literature in Latin America. Um, so I started reading, again, uh, Domingo Faustino Sarmiento, who is someone that we all, in, will all Argentines read at some point in time because he was instrumental. He was one of the instrumental persons, men, to um, to devise the nation. And here I mean, uh, right after Argentina became independent, here is talking about 18, early 1800s, right, 1830s. Argentina became independent in 1817, right? But but in the so in the 1830s, uh, there is a group of men, and I call them. I don't call them right. We call them the generation of 1837, because there were a cohort of intellectuals, so men of letters and men of politics and of science, right, that were tasked to literally devise the nation, because Argentina, as many other um, newly independent countries in Latin America, uh, uh, Peru, Colombia, Mexico, right, this new uh, political, this new elite, right? They, they have kicked out the Spaniards, but now they need to figure out what this country is about. I mean, the, thinking about it is just, it's huge, right? Like, how, how do you even start? Uh, and these people have, have been, have studied, most of them have studied in Europe, right? They had, they had, they were embedded in the ideals of the Enlightenment or of positivism, right? So, so they want to do something like that with Argentina, right? Like to modernize it, to bring light to it in the most positive terms, uh, positive, uh, positive, positivist of terms, right? But they also want to do something new, um, and in in the terms of what is of. Um, in relationship to the comparative advantage of Latin American nations. And, and what this group of people uh, come up with is particularly Sarmiento, right? By writing Facundo, he creates this dichotomy that is also huge. It is also an, an intrinsic part of Argentine's identity in which, in which 
life, society, culture, but particularly nature, is seen in this dichotomy of civilization or barbarism, right? So, so the project of a nation becomes to, to civilize Argentina, right? And that means civilizing the countryside, civilizing its people, right? And of course, uh, we, you read the book and even just talking about civilization, right, brings about uh, all the connotations that come uh, with it, right? Like this idea that, that, that everything that is not under the, the, the control of the Buenos Aires-based elite, right, is, needs to be tamed, right? These are uh, the wild Indians need to be tamed. The wild savage territory needs to be tamed, right? So, so, so begins not only in discursive ways, but also in military ways, um, this um, campaigns in order to control and tame the territory by exterminating and displacing indigenous people, taking over land, um, bringing in European immigrants into the into Argentina, right, to populate the territory. So uh, a colonization process very much like the one you had here in the United States, right, with the westward expansion. So th- these are similar processes that are taking place in the uh, 19th century in, in, in the Americas post-independence. So um, I, I think that, and I argue in the book, that, that having this deep history of like looking into what are the social and cultural roots of soybean production is necessary to understand why there is such acquiescence and consent in the present. And most significantly is because, well, for once is it, it, it sets the stage into who are the people in charge, right? Why is it that, um, feminized, uh, most, why is it that women are excluded from agriculture? Why is it that indigenous and peasant peoples are excluded from agriculture, like large-scale agro-exporting, right? Why is it that the, that the pampas are empty, are fully mechanized? Why is it that, uh, that uh, Argentine farmers are capitalist farmers? Uh, why is it that they are European, right? Like all those things that that by today become are the way in which things are and and therefore creates acquiescence and consent has a history and to me needs to be understood in order to 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 full blown the to bring full blown this idea of the synergies of power right because it is it is it is its historical di- dimension that makes that makes uh, that makes the power of uh, corporate and state actors of the agribusinesses of men uh, in agricultural production go unquestioned because these are the ways in in which things are and the ways in which people in the pampas see nature right like the idea is that nature always needs to be controlled nature always needs to be dominated tamed made productive Right, like the project of bringing capitalism into the pampas was a project that by now goes unquestioned, but it was a project um, which worked, worked, worked fabulously, right? But um, I, 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 I think it's necessary to understand this historical dimension to understand why, who, why the people who are in power, and how they perceive agricultural production now are the way in which things are done. Um. Yeah, I think you, you lay that all re- out really nicely uh, in the book. So I'm interested to hear a little more about your research process. So a lot of what you write in the book is based on interviews that you did with a variety of different people in Argentina. And so can you tell us more about your experience of doing these interviews? What was it like? What were some of the, you know, the good and bad aspects of it? And maybe some of your favorite anecdotes that you got out of some of the people that you got to interview? Yes. Um, as I said earlier, I think I arrived to my fieldwork quite um, raw. I mean, 
not raw, but um, naive, like um, very inexperienced. So I think I, 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 um, I, um, the first thing that I learned through it, and I was very lucky to, to meet some people that were very, very keen in teaching me what agricultural production was like, right? And, and teaching me this history. So um, I've, the first thing that, that I think it's, it's a, a good experience, or I mean, something that I learned throughout the process. And as, as I say, I, it, it wasn't smooth for me. So I hope this helps other people who are beginning. Um, is that it took me a while, first of all, to listen. To, to actually believe what people were saying because I had so much in my head about the things that I had read about how genetically modified crops are bad, right? how people are protesting. Or, so I, I, I arrived with a lot of answers <laughs> and, and they were not the answers. So I think that that, that, that was a, a bit rough for me, but I think that eventually it did relax and started um, hearing, which was important. The other thing that um, that really st- struck me by surprise, and and this is a bit of the the core of the book, is that I realized that I I was there. I thought I was there to mostly do interviews, right? I wasn't planning a full blown, blown ethnography for multiple reasons, but including that I had. I didn't have that much time. I was only doing field work during summers. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm going to focus mostly on interviews. So I I kept thinking that my research data collection began when I turned on the microphone. I mean, this is not, um, of course, not so tight, right? But the thing was that I was there to study agricultural transition. I was there to study why uh, producers, uh, how is it that, what is it that producers think about this new technological innovation, right? So in my mind, in my mind, the questions around agriculture were happening. I I mean, when when all these questions were taking place. Now with time, I realized that, that there was a huge gender division of labor taking place, even though, even when I was there, right, in the countryside, in the homes, in the households, in the farms, and that was that it was all men, the ones who were answering my questions, right, that they would be like, I would be spending time with a family, like we were like cooking, looking after children, or just hanging out, right, like I, I was staying in this a uh, very small town, so I would hang out a lot with these families. But then it was like, okay, now it's work time, and when it's work time, then uh, the wife, mother who was hanging out with us would leave and leave us to do our work. And then we would go and like drive to the farm, and I would spend all this time with all these men, uh, and I was m- mostly all the time the only woman there. So in Suddenly, something became um, quite striking, and again, it, it, it had to. It took me a while for me to make it visible, and and what made it like truly visible, or actually slapped me in my face, was that when I arrived to this one town that in the book I call Santa Maria, is that I was spending all almost all my time with just women, and that was the only time that that happened. That that instead of being me uh, going from a farm to an agribusiness, right, to to uh, the sewing pool, right, to, to talk about to with all these people that I had in my list that I had to interview, I, I was spending a lot of my downtime with just women. Uh, and what these women started sharing with me was that they were quite worried and concerned about the potential health risks coming from um, agrochemical exposure, right? And they wouldn't say like that. They were like, we were like, we will be talking about anything, like the news, 
what's for what is it that you're going to be cooking? They kept telling me about when I was going to get married, right? Like why I was there, like simple things of the everyday life. And and then suddenly they will come up with, oh, but you know, I'm starting to get worried because because my plants are dying, they're wilting. Or and then they would change topic. Or then they would tell me, oh, you know, I heard that someone in the neighborhood got cancer. Oh, but 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 there has always been cancer. And then they would change topics, right? So it's suddenly, like, quite suddenly, I became involved in something that to me, like, created a lot of dissonance because I thought I was living in some, this very odd dimension in which these women that almost all the time, not almost, that all the time when we were in public and talking with other people, they kept telling me everything is great. Uh, this is the best we do the best agriculture in the world. Um, everyone lives off the countryside. They would never say anything that is wrong or bad or against soybeans or against agricultural production. But then suddenly when we were alone, they would bring up all these grievances and that they were worried and concerned, but then suddenly instantly shut up when either when other people came in or just shut up and change the conversation. Um, so um, it took me again, and I talk about this in the book because I'm trying to, something that I wanted to do with the book is to, um, to share how, how messy doing research is. Something that, that kept striking me as I was writing the book is how is it one goes from doing the field work to the final product. And, and we only get to see the final product. And it seems that when, or maybe this is just me, right? But sometimes when I read books, I'm like, how did you come up to the question? How did you come up to analyzing the data like this, right? It, it, it becomes so... The book is such a finished product uh, that when we are new in begin, like when we are barely beginning doing social research, at least to me the process was, I was was like I had so many questions as to how do you go from A to B, right? How do you go from yeah. I yeah right? Like how do I go from oh I'm interested in this topic to now I have a book about this because all our professors and colleagues ask us all the questions, right? Like, what's your research question? What's your data? What's your methodology? How, like, how are you, what's your argument? What's the significance? And it's like, I don't know, right? And it is a process. It is a process that takes a lot of discipline and a lot of work and a lot of sweating. And for me, a lot of crying, right? But a lot of struggling with this. Uh, so what I, something that I wanted to do with the book and make, and, it was a huge catharsis too, right? To like to put it out there that I didn't know all the things that were happening, that many of the things that I found out there, first of all, as I said earlier, it took me a long time to listen and and believe people and be like, okay, and I'm going to shut off what I think you're saying and just going to actually hear you and and trust that you know what you're doing and what you're saying, which is um, it is a skill. I found that to me that was a skill. And also to realize that that the question kept shifting and that the answers kept shifting. And that sometimes, and particularly for me, this gray area of, I don't know what's happening here. And I was not, I didn't come for this, but now this is showing in my face. And after thinking about it a lot and talking it with other people, then that became the thing that was truly interesting, this tension of, of women in public um, silencing, but in private worrying. Uh, and, and, and so I'm saying that, that, with, that only with time, that became what was important. But it it did take take me a long time, so it it was a good experience, but it was also a, a difficult experience because I didn't understand what was happening, um, and it took me, um, yeah, it took me time to to realize that it was okay not to know and to try to make as good notes as good as possible to try to figure out later 
why is it that this matters? Um, so, yeah, good and bad aspects together. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep. Well, hopefully we've got our listeners all all excited to pick up the book and learn more about all this. So to close, we always so. like to ask our yeah. We always like to ask our guests uh, what you're working on next. So what projects have you got now that this book is finally out? Yeah. Um, so I'm in the very beginning of a new project. Um, so I I'm, I'm now again trying to be kind to myself and be like, it's okay not to know uh, because I'm getting a lot of this question of like, what's the second project? And I go like, I don't know. Uh, but uh, so I've started... Um, I've, I had started right after finishing with the soybeans. Um, I had started thinking about, I, I am still very much curious about the question of um, the promise of the technologies for sustainable development, which is huge. And I've been learning a lot about uh, like new technological developments in agriculture right? Robots, nanotechnology. So I'm very curious about that. But after spending the this whole summer now under COVID and here in the Gulf South and being um, hit by a hurricane more, almost every other week, why, while at the same time in Argentina now there are massive fires that are expand, that are um, burning uh, most of the north of the country, the same than in the Amazon, right? I'm in the last few months I have become taken by trying to understand the 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 impact of industrial agriculture on climate change. So something that I had studied that that I'm starting to develop as a research project and I don't know where this will lead me right so I um, hopefully uh, somewhere. But something that I'm very curious about is to trying to understand um how how industrial agriculture um, creates climate change, particularly, and, and here I'm looking in particular at the Paraná River Delta in Argentina, which is uh, which is the the main um, the main hydroway in, that that ships soybeans into China, right? So so. Um, the, the pampa, the, the, the agrochemical runoff from the soybean farms goes into the river, but this river is also strategic for shipping the soybeans, right? So I, I, and, and a similar process happens here in the, in the Gulf South, in which we, here in the Gulf South, we um, produce, we manufacture, from the oil and gas extracted from the Gulf, we pipeline it into the New Orleans region here in Louisiana. We create nitrogen. This nitrogen is used as fertilizer that is fumigated in the Midwest. And then that creates this agrochemical runoff that flows down the Mississippi River to create this massive dead zone at the birth food, right at the at the bottom of the Mississippi River Delta. So something that I'm envisioning, I mean, this is a very visual image in my mind that I'm hoping that it will become a research project. It's how do we understand this, the flows of these commodities, right? This we 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 have organized all the infrastructure to make these commodities flow, but in this flowing it it erode like the commodities erode ecosystems and peoples. So I, I'm trying to understand this this flow, and and also at, at the same time trying to understand wh- what can be done. I'm trying to move away from what this book is that has really no solutions, but trying to look at solutions. So I'm, I've started reading a lot about climate policy, but I'm very very. Um, taken into trying to look into what may climate policy look like in regions that are so heavily dependent on resource extraction, right? Particularly here in Louisiana, uh, in the Gulf South and in Argentina, right? These places that have these ecosystems that are being threatened, that, that the 
the resource extraction is eroding them, right? They are making them more vulnerable to climate change. And we're trying to do something, right, by developing policy, yet this policy does not include getting rid of the extractivist practices that create climate change in the same place. Um, so I find all that fascinating, but I don't know yet the shape of it. Well, it's, it seems like there's a lot of really interesting possibilities in there. So we'll look forward to seeing what you come up with. Um, thank you. So uh, Dr. Leguizamon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Stanto, for having me. It was a huge pleasure. And listeners, you just heard a conversation with Amalia Leguizamon, author of Seeds of Power, Environmental Injustice in Genetically Modified Soybeans in Argentina, published this year by Duke University Press.